Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Monday, November 28, 2022. It's been 3,197 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 278 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world, Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess that the risk of terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure is extremely high, with another round of attacks likely this week. Second, we maintain that Russia will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed, or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Third, we maintain that the risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants caused by Russian electrical infrastructure destruction is possible. Fourth, we maintain that Russia is conducting stealth mobilization and may be preparing for the second wave of partial mobilization in January 2023. Fifth, We assess that the slowdown in combat operations on multiple axes will end in the next 13 to 28 days, with winter weather conditions starting to sweep across Ukraine. Sixth, we maintain that neither belligerent will institute a winter pause. Seventh, we maintain that President Putin's inner circle is actively targeting Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu for dismissal and replacement due to continued military failures in Ukraine. Eighth, We maintain that Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing unrest inside and outside the Kremlin. If there continue to be military failures, there is a remote chance Russia could face a regime change. Ninth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. Tenth, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin, due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. Eleventh, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. And finally, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine has diminished, but remains a possibility in the next 45 to 75 days. Let's get some regional updates and, since it's a Monday, check in with both belligerents' objectives, starting, of course, with Kherson and Zaporizhia. The Russian objective is to prevent Ukrainian offensives into Kherson and Zaporizhia, integrate captured territory into the Russian Federation, 
and break civilian will with continued terror attacks. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate Russian-occupied areas, prevent further Russian advances, exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and protect civilians. There was mutual shelling by both belligerents, with increased activity compared to November 26th. Russian forces conducted 54 fire missions on the free Ukraine territories west of the Dnipro River. In Kherson and Bereslav, artillery fire targeted residential areas. One civilian was killed and two wounded, including a child in Chornobayevka. The Kherson suburb of Stepanivka was shelled, causing heavy damage to civilian housing. Hours after Ukraine restored electricity to Kherson, including 17% of homes, Russian artillery units targeted the high-voltage lines that supply the city, severing the connection. Power was restored by Ukrainian engineers who are continuing to work on repairing electrical, natural gas, water, sewer, and cellular infrastructure west of the Dnipro. During their retreat, Russian forces destroyed the highway bridge on the M14 highway between Kherson and Mykolaiv. Ukrainian engineers have built a bypass that has reopened the highway to traffic and have already started demolishing the main road. Seriously, it's really impressive. East of the Dnipro, Russian-occupied Novokhovka continues to be shelled. Insurgents reported that Russian occupation forces had evacuated all collaborators and their families, including those who led raids on people's homes and worked on the sham referendum. Social media reports and insurgents claimed Russian positions were shelled in Radensk and Holopristan, and rockets fired by HIMARS struck Russian positions in Kalinchuk, 30 kilometers northwest of the Kherson-Crimea administrative border. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Russian forces had set up a repair base in Holopristan, and up to 30 pieces of equipment with light-to-moderate damage were awaiting service. There was no change in the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Mikhailo Podolyak, the advisor to the head of the office of the president of Ukraine, said during an interview on Freedom TV that Russian occupation forces would voluntarily leave ZNPP as Russian defensive lines continue to move south and west without providing a timetable. Petro Kotin, president of Energoatom, said during an interview on OnePlus One that Russian occupation forces were setting conditions to withdraw from the nuclear facility, saying, quote, I am under the impression that they are packing their bags and stealing everything they see, end quote. He did temper his prediction, adding there weren't imminent signs of a planned departure. Director General Rafael Grossi, head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, has repeatedly called for the demilitarization of the plant and the creation of a green zone, which at one time he suggested could be 50 kilometers wide, saying it should extend to the city of Zaporizhia. We had previously reported that the Kremlin appeared to be setting conditions in the information space to prepare Russian citizens to accept a withdrawal from ZNPP, but that the political tide appeared to turn after Russian troops looted a convoy delivering spare parts and equipment to the plant late last week. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces shelled Enerhodar on November 26th, destroying up to six pieces of military equipment and wounding up to 30 Russian troops. Neither the IAEA nor the Russian Ministry of Defense made any claims that ZNPP or the area immediately around it was shelled. A video was shared by Russian forces showing the aftermath of a strike on their position in Vasilivka, Zaporizhia. 
The video shows the attack destroyed at least three pieces of equipment, and evidence suggests the area was hit by an M30A1 rocket fired by HIMARS that uses a shaped charge to deliver 182,000 tungsten fragments. Russian sources reported that Ukrainian forces significantly increased the amount of artillery fire along the front near Polokhi, with the GSAFU reporting that Russian positions in the town and Chernihivka to the south were attacked, wounding up to a hundred Russian troops. The increase in shelling is fueling renewed rumors in the Russian information space that Ukraine is preparing to launch a counteroffensive from Orkhiv or Khulyapola. With these claims now three months old, we maintain our assessment that a broken clock is eventually right. The Institute for the Study of War analyzed known Russian defensive positions constructed in Zaporizhia, which revealed that most of the construction work has occurred on critical ground lines of communication, called GLOCs. Those are supply lines as far east as Melitopol. Half-height dragon's teeth line the critical roadways throughout the oblast. With the main concentration of defensive positions from Khachovka to the mouth of the Dnipro and extending southeast to Crimea, we had previously assessed that Russian forces were dedicating significant resources to create an echelon of defensive lines east of the Dnipro in anticipation of a Ukrainian attack. The depth of the reinforced positions and where they are built indicate that Russian military commanders are significantly worried about a Ukrainian attack. Particularly from the west bank of the Dnipro into eastern Kherson, we maintain that Ukraine does not have the resources to attempt a large amphibious river crossing, and would more likely go around the defensive lines through Zaporizhia. The defensive lines complicate the Ukrainian offensive strategy, which avoids strongholds and uses maneuver warfare. Since World War II, history has shown that static defenses are ultimately ineffective at stopping a determined force. But can cause significant delays and advances, and force a belligerent to suffer heavy casualties. The vastness of the network that has been created will require a significant human capital commitment by the Kremlin, which could impact combat activity in other regions. Quick sidebar here: just to be clear, Malcontent News does not receive government briefings from any source, nor has access to classified materials, and we have no information on when or if an offensive will be launched in this area in the short term. Just putting that out there. Ivan Fedorov, the exiled mayor of Melitopol, claimed that Russian occupiers were hunting down partisan leaders and offering rewards as high as 500,000 rubles. That's 8,250 U.S. dollars. The city has been a center of insurgent activity since the late spring. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported increased artillery activity from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Khulyapola to Orekhiv to Sherbaki. Now to the Donbas region, starting with southwest Donetsk. The Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, and bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. The Ukrainian objective is to lock Russian military assets in place, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, and interdict supplies and disrupt logistics. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions in Vremivka were shelled and hit by Russian airstrikes, supporting the Russian MOD claim that Ukraine was attacking Russian positions to the south. 
The Russian MOD reported fighting around Shevchenko and renewed fighting in Pavlivka, without evidence. In fact, not a single other source reported fighting in this region. The military traditions of the First Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, were upheld in Novomikhailivka, with yet another failed advance on the town. Fighting continued in Marinka, according to both Ukrainian and Russian sources, with some Russian mill bloggers claiming that forces with the DNR militia had advanced further into the city. Mercenaries with Wargonzo, which have generally been reliable in their reports, made no such claims, only stating that fighting continued. The First Army Corps started its main assault on Marinka four months ago, and has made repeated claims of battlefield success there that were either untrue or temporary. We aren't questioning if there is fighting in Marinka, but when it comes to Russian claims of battlefield success, pictures or video or it didn't happen. Ukrainian and Russian sources reported continued fighting south and east of the firebase in Nevelsky and another attempt to advance into Pervomaisky from Pisky without success. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported fighting in Vodyana, where elements of the 1st Army Corps have been blocked for weeks. The People's Militia of the DNR Telegram channel released a video showing night fighting in Vodyana with a Ukrainian position destroyed by artillery or tank fire. You will need a Telegram account to view the video, but we do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Ukrainian forces reported that Russian proxy forces attempted another advance on Avdiivka head-on and were met with the same disastrous results. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces successfully repelled an attack on Novobakhmutivka for the second time in a week. We had previously moved the line of conflict southeast, but maintain the town is contested. Civilian areas of Russian-occupied Makhivka and central Donetsk were shelled, causing at least three casualties. Without naming specific locations, the GSAFU denied any Ukrainian involvement in intentional attacks on civilians in the occupied territories, and accused Russian forces of committing false flag attacks to, quote, discredit the Ukrainian defense forces. We did not analyze yesterday's attacks, but in previous reviews, we determined that shellings at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and Donetsk over the summer were fired from areas occupied by Russian forces. Russian forces shelled Kurakhova on the N-15 highway G-lock, remember, that's a supply line, which supports Ukrainian forces in Marinka. Two people were killed and one injured when a shell landed in an apartment complex playground. The People's Militia of the DNR released their five o'clock follies, claiming their forces destroyed three main battle tanks, three D-30 howitzers, and 14, quote, armored and automotive vehicles, all without evidence. The Russian MOD did report that Ukrainian tanks and armored and automotive vehicles were destroyed across Donetsk, but not in alignment with the DNR report. Ukrainian forces conducted 181 fire missions across the occupied territories. The GSAFU reported that Russian Mobics were completing small arms training in Novopetrikivka before being deployed to the front. Residents of the town of Staromlinivka were forcibly removed, and Russian troops occupied their homes. In northeast Donetsk, the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, defend against Ukrainian advances toward Luhansk, and capture Bakhmut Solidar. The Ukrainian objective is to defend Bakhmut Solidar, 
push into the Luhansk Oblast, and minimize civilian casualties. The GSAFU reported that Russian forces attempted to advance on Yakovlivka without success. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported significant fighting continued east of Solidar, with no change to the line of conflict. It has been four months since Russian proxy forces supported by mercenaries with private military company or PMC Wagner Group launched their initial attacks on both towns. Renewed fighting erupted east and southeast of Bakhmut, and Russian forces unsuccessfully attempted to advance into Opitne. We had previously reported that PMC Wagner had deployed 2,000 mercenaries with penal units, and Ukrainian military commanders appeared to be matching troop deployments. Journalist Victoria Khamaza, who has written stories for Suspilne, reported on her Telegram channel that up to 500 Ukrainian forces had been wounded in action over the weekend. She also reported that Russian troops had destroyed three ambulances and there was a need for electrical generators. In a later report, she claimed, quote, street fighting was ongoing in some areas. Wargonzo didn't paint a much better picture for Russian proxy forces led by PMC Wagner, claiming Ukrainian forces could easily rotate among their defensive positions and were building new defensive lines covertly in the overnight hours. Russian forces continue to lack night vision and thermal imaging, with many units attempting to crowdsource consumer hardware. Wargonzo claimed that Ukrainian forces were leaving booby traps in, quote, the vicinity of Bakhmut and other villages of laptops, jewelry, and other valuables mined with explosives. Since it was enough to report, apparently, at least more than one PMC Wagner mercenary FAFO'd. Quick sidebar here. FAFO'd means f***ed around and found out. Fighting continued along the T-513 highway, including attempted advances on Andriivka, Kurdyumivka, and Ozaryanivka. There was no change in the line of conflict, with fighting in Ozaryanivka reportedly intense. The Russian MOD reported fighting in Mayorsk. A video showed Russian troops had suffered heavy losses and were carrying the dead and wounded to a rallying point. Southeast of Lusychansk, fighting continued on the Donetsk-Luhansk administrative border, near Verknokomyanskia, led by the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, and Spirna, led by PMC Wagner. In Luhansk, the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, hold current defensive lines, and control insurgency. The Ukrainian objective is to break Russian defensive lines, advance on Svatova, Kremina, and Lusychansk, and support insurgents. The Russian MOD and mercenaries with Rybar reported continued fighting in Novoselivska and Kuzimivka. There was no change in the situation. Russian sources reported their troops failed to advance on Ukrainian positions in Stelnachivka. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions in Rajhorodka were shelled, hinting that a small advance may have occurred in the contested settlement or that Russian forces were conducting interdiction. The GSAFU reported Ploshanka was shelled for the tenth day in a row, and both the Russian MOD and mercenaries with Rybar reported continued fighting in the village. The Russian MOD also reported continued fighting on the outskirts of Chervonopopivka, with no change in the situation. The GSAFU reported that Russian forces shelled Dibrova, 
and Russian mill bloggers claimed that Ukrainian forces have almost reached the southwest corner of Kremina. Despite claims from Morgonzo, we have not changed our map because there has been no visual confirmation that Dibrova is under Ukrainian control. And we have trust issues. Both Ukrainian sources and Wargonzo reported continued fighting led by PMC Wagner east of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with no change in the situation. The GSAFU confirmed a strike on Svatova on November 25th, targeting a concentration of 70 Russian troops, but did not make any claims about casualties. Rybar reported new HIMARS strikes on Svatova and Nizhny Duvanka, which is north of Svatova, and on the Russian GLOC supplying defensive operations near Kuzimivka. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, claimed that Ukrainian forces struck a, quote, important enemy target in Luhansk without providing any other details. I'm pretty intrigued. I don't know about you. The Eastern Human Rights Group reported that Russian government officials are planning to close coal mines in the DNR and the rear areas of occupied Luhansk. Russian troops had intentionally flooded some coal mines in Luhansk over the summer. A Ministry of Energy of the Russian Federation Commission determined that output has declined to an unprofitable level, partly because 65% of the employees have been mobilized or forced conscripted. Continuing to provide minimal support for mine operations is utilizing too many resources. Mines must continuously pump water out to prevent flooding, and the Donbass is polluted with heavy metals from Soviet-era production and naturally occurring uranium. If all operations are ended, including pumping efforts, it will be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to return the mines to normal operation, and could pollute the water table that serves eastern Ukraine and western Russia for decades. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. In the Cherniev, Kharkiv, and Sumy region, the Russian objective is to lock Ukrainian military resources into place and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale and maximize casualties by deprivation of heat, water, and medical services. The Ukrainian objective is to complete the liberation of the Kharkiv Oblast, maintain the integrity of the international border, deter attacks, and protect civilian lives. A Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for a ground attack struck the village of Bezmyatezhne, 30 kilometers southwest of Kupyansk, damaging a lyceum. Quick note here. A lyceum is a secondary school that typically specializes in teaching art, music, or sports. Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the Romada of Esmen was struck by two shells near the international border with Russia. Otherwise, it was quiet. The GSAFU reported the villages of Yanjolivka, Mikolaivka, and Khalakhanivka were shelled in the Cherniev Oblast. Moving on to the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region. Naval expert H.I. Sutton reported that the Russian Black Sea fleet has changed operations significantly after Ukraine's unmanned surface vessel attack on the Russian port of Sevastopol on October 29th and Novorossiysk on November 18th, saying, quote, They, the Russians, 
enlarged the floating booms in the Bay of Sevastopol and changed procedures to close them much faster. Every warship, even a powerful warship leaving Sevastopol, is now accompanied by high-speed vessels. End quote. In the same interview with the Telegraph, the United Kingdom publication claimed that the missile frigate Admiral Makarov was significantly damaged in the attack. The Makarov has not left port since October 29th, and no one has been able to take pictures of its starboard side. The Russian Ministry of Defense maintains that only the minesweeper Ivan Golubitz was damaged during the drone attack. Since October 29th, the missile carriers of the Black Sea Fleet have not gone on patrol. And during recent strikes on Ukraine, they only head out to sea to their firing positions and immediately return to port. At the time of recording, the Black Sea Fleet had 11 vessels on patrol, none capable of launching caliber cruise missiles. A gentle reminder, the Malcontent News Situation Report should not be used for travel, navigation, or personal security assessment. The listener agrees to get real-time information from official channels provided by national, oblast, rayon, romada, city, or local officials, and follow their security recommendations. Thank you. In Sevastopol, the yellow alert for potential terrorism was extended to December 12th. Russian forces fired artillery in the direction of Ochakiv, with shells landing in the water. Russian forces also shelled the coastline of Kutsurub without causing any damage or injuries. In western and central Ukraine, the Russian objective is to launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to maximize casualties by deprivation of heat, water, and medical services, and break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to deter attacks and protect civilian lives. Russian forces attacked Pokrovsk, Chervonohryorivka, and Markhanets with up to 30 Grad rockets from S-21 Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or MLRS. There was no significant damage or casualties reported. In Ivanofrankivsk, the Security Service of Ukraine, or SSU, searched the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate for collaborators, weapons, or evidence of material support of the Russian Federation. The SSU reported the clergy was cooperative and working with the security service during the inspection. On the Russian front, Vyacheslav Gladkov, Bilgorod Oblast governor, reported that Shibikino was shelled, damaging power lines in the town. Because of the outage, water and sewer service was knocked out in some regions. Repair work continued on the Kerch Bridge, revealing that early claims by Moscow that the first two lanes had been brought into service were untrue, or the bridge was only being lightly used for critical transport. According to Deputy Prime Minister of the Russian Federation, Marat Husnalin, resurfacing of the new bridge structure has begun and is expected to be completed by December 5th, with the lanes that were heavily damaged reopening by December 20th. The claim doesn't align with multiple reports from Russian state media that only the replaced lanes would reopen by December 20th, and the damaged lanes have too much structural damage and will need complete replacement. See, this is why we have trust issues. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Ukrainian officials warned that another round of missile attacks would happen in the coming week, and our analyst team has identified activity in the Russian Federation that supports that assessment. Ukraine was close to stabilizing its energy system, but was still dealing with a 20% deficit requiring rolling blackouts to continue in 15 regions. DTEK reported that a couple of power plants had to make, quote, 
emergency shutdowns, creating a 27% deficit. Because of the power generation and distribution shortfall, unscheduled rolling blackouts were implemented across Ukraine. The spat between Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko over problems with invincibility points in the city continued, with Klitschko lashing out at national government officials. On Telegram, the mayor reported that over 400 centers were operating, and another 100 could come online now that donations of more generators had been received. Klitschko wrote, quote, I do not want, especially in the current situation, to enter into political battles. It's ridiculous. When I went to check the operation of the points yesterday, I met people's deputies from the ruling party, and they told me in a private conversation that all the points where they visited were open and working. And then they post some incomprehensible photos. It looks ugly, to say the least, both for Ukrainians and for our foreign partners. End quote. On his last point, he's correct, with Russian mill bloggers pouncing on the spat and sharing a single picture of a brown-tented invincibility point. Cellular communications were largely restored over the weekend after the November 23rd missile attacks. Over 83% of communication towers were operating, with most remaining outages around Odessa and in the occupied territory of Zaporizhia. The GSAFU reported that Russia was rotating some of its troops and military hardware out of Belarus to reinforce units that have suffered significant losses in the past month. Video emerged of Ukrainian troops using an M101 howitzer donated by Lithuania. The M101 was introduced in 1941 by the United States military, with production ending in 1953. Over 10,000 pieces were built and are still in use by 66 nations. The artillery piece is known for its accuracy and reliability, but the range is limited to only 11 kilometers, making it vulnerable to counter-battery fire. Fun fact, the M101 is still used in the United States by the Forest Service and many mountainous states for avalanche control, among other retired military hardware, including M60 tanks. So... Don't make snowplow drivers angry or they might call in a fire mission. Or just block your car in your driveway. The German government announced they had completed the transfer of 10 M1070 Oshkosh tank haulers and 53 armored vehicles to Ukraine. Aside from heavy weapons, heavy and military trucks are Ukraine's largest need. The United Kingdom confirmed that Ukraine had received the upgraded Brimstone 2 missile, The ground-to-ground fire-and-forget missile has a published range of at least 40 kilometers when fired from the ground or a helicopter and travels at Mach 1.3. Speaking of fire-and-forget, let's talk about Russian mobilization. More pictures and videos of trucks carrying dragon's teeth to the northern regions of Russian-occupied Crimea have emerged. Russian social media channels lit up with complaints that the border guards were holding up the shipments of, quote, dual-use items, such as drones, thermal imagers, gun sights, two-way radios, tactical gloves, sleeping bags, heaters, and other items. It was unclear why the items were being held up at the border, with outrage expressed in Russian circles for holding up crowdsourced materials from reaching Russian troops. In Saratov, Russia, a pub is being guarded by the National Police and Russian National Guard after the owner told a group of soldiers that she could not serve them because they were in uniform and already drunk. 
The owner insisted that she followed Russian law, saying, quote, There is a law that they cannot go to public institutions in military uniform. Young people come to the pub in a state of intoxication, and we have rules that we are not allowed in any form, neither in medical, nor in firefighters, nor in sportswear, nor in flip-flops. End quote. Russian patriots weren't having it, and responded like true patriots, with threats to burn the bar down and attack its employees. Samushkin Sergei Alexandrovich, commander of the Security Department of the Second Department of the Secretariat of the Ministry of State Security of the DNR, yes, that was in fact his actual title, was killed in combat. Alexandrovich, who used Sergei as his last name, fought in the Lebanon War against Hezbollah and was a member of the Russian GRU. He had been a member of the DNR government since April 2014. Following instructions from the RIA, which, by the way, banned our website on March 23rd and we could not be prouder, the Russian Facebook clone VK deplatformed the Council of Mothers and Wives of Military Personnel after their failed attempts to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin and condemnation of the sham meeting he held with 18 hand-picked women on Saturday, mostly government officials. Founded by Olga Tsukhanova, the organization now has chapters in 89 cities. Because why meet with angry wives and their babushka mothers to hear their real concerns? Listening to real people's concerns is for losers. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's very brief report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. According to the United Nations, the number of registered refugees from Ukraine now in other European nations is 4,751,070 people, about 11% of the total pre-war population. The countries hosting the most refugees are Poland, Germany, and the Czech Republic. In geopolitical news, Russia is moving to make surrogate motherhood illegal, with the Speaker of the Russian State Duma falsely claiming that most of the 45,000 children who were born to be taken abroad ended up having their organs harvested or were sold to same-sex couples to corrupt the children. If you're wondering where all the QAnon rhetoric started, I think I know the answer. Kristo Grosev of Bellingcat reported that the Russian couple arrested by Swedish officials for espionage had an apartment in Moscow since 1999. The address is attached to the GRU and is used by Russian assets previously compromised in the field. Residents of the same building include GRU agent Denis Sergiev, suspected of the 2018 Novichok poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in the United Kingdom. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban said, quote, Europe is united by a desire to keep Russia from posing a security threat, and a sovereign Ukraine is crucial, end quote. In a surprising reversal, of course, after months of appearing to be more aligned to Moscow. This follows Hungary announcing its support for Ukraine's 18 billion euro aid package after initially saying they would not support the package due to the need to focus on internal issues. Whether the change of heart came from Russian natural gas supply issues caused by repeated attacks on Ukraine's electrical infrastructure, 
or the EU threatening to withhold 7.5 billion euros in support to his nation, is unclear. In economic news, the ruble is flat at the start of currency trading on Monday, with an exchange rate of 61 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices are crashing, which is bad news for the Russian Federation. WTI crude is expected to start trading at $74 a barrel and Brent at $81. Market prices are reaching Russian discounted prices, and further currency manipulation by Moscow will increase the already sky-high 21% inflation rate. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market is also down, trading at $2.30 per gallon for November contracts. That's 61 cents a liter. Russia is facing another problem with oil exports, a lack of large tankers. As winter weather settles in, export from eastern Russian oil terminals requires specialized vessels. Due to sanctions, insurance issues, and global demand in Western nations, many shippers are unwilling to carry Russian crude and LNG. Russian shipping companies only own one large tanker with two in production and currently do not own any LNG tankers. While three gas carriers are under construction in South Korea, Russia likely won't be able to take delivery on them due to sanctions, and the ships don't provide near enough capacity. On the subject of natural gas, Dutch TTF gas futures for January 2023 were up, trading at 124 euros per megawatt hour. February 2023 contracts were trading at 125 euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures are in the red, and were expected to open around $7.88 a bushel for March 2022 contracts. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.